Coming up, we'll meet First Round Down's Butler Brothers. That's directors Brett and Jason and their star Rachel Wilson. Then we go along with All You Need Is Love director Tony Palmer. We made a uh, feature for like 50 bucks, did a two-hander over a weekend. <laughs> then we jumped to the $500 level. And then uh, the, the previous one to this, Morning Is Broken, was for $1,000. The most beautiful, completely naked girl I'd ever seen. Uh, the guy opened the door and he just had porn playing on a big screen right behind him. And we're, we're just doing the exchange like this is just casual. <laughs> and he has this hardcore big screen. <laughs> Oh my God. What are we doing here? And I could tell from this weary girl's voice on the end of the phone, I was the 400th person who'd rung up that morning, said John Lennon said to call. And about half an hour later, a wonderful man called Derek Taylor, who was their longtime Beatles publicist, rang up and said, I've got a message from John. And I eventually nervously said, what is the message? John wants to know why it's taking you three years to call him. I was fired from many restaurants. Were you? Yeah. And what was the problem? Well, you know, I'm not a very good multitasker, and I'm particularly <laughs> terrible with food multitasking. Hey folks, welcome to the House of Krauss. I'm Richard Krauss. Come on in, the air conditioning is pumping, there's cold drinks at the bar. Come on in, grab yourself something to sip on, and enjoy the conversations as they fly through the air. A little bit later, we'll meet Tony Palmer. Tony Palmer is a film director with over 100 films to his credit, mostly music documentaries, and he's worked with everybody from The Beatles to Jimi Hendrix. He directed 200 Motels for Frank Zappa. He's also worked with Yehudi Menuhin, Carl uh, Orff, Benjamin Britten, everybody. This guy has done it all. Fascinating stories. First up, though, I want you to meet Rachel Wilson, star of First Round Down, and the Butler Brothers, Jason and Brett, who directed the film. Now, this is a small Canadian film with a great soundtrack, heavy on the junk house, Sloan is in there, the Northern Pikes Triumph. It all fuels the action of a young guy who goes home after a 10-year absence. Here's the setup. The guy was once a promising prospect for the NHL. He has a concussion. He leaves his small town, disappears. Gone for 10 years, nobody knows where he is. Well, it turns out he was a hitman in Montreal for the mob. When he decides to come home to let all that go, he runs into some complications and there's that one last job that he just has to get done. This is working class Tarantino. It's a scrappy little crime story that proudly wears its low budget status on its sleeve. It wisely invests in stories and characters instead of oversized set pieces. I like this movie. It'll be on VOD soon. I'm sharing this conversation with you because we just had some fun. We don't really talk about the movie all that much. The interesting part of this for me sort of veered off. It got a little silly because in the film, the main character comes back to this small town and he starts delivering pizzas. And it's pretty authentic, the stuff that happens to him. So I was wondering, you know, where did that idea come from? Well, it turns out that the Butler brothers were talking about personal experiences as they were writing about and filming first round down pizza delivery sequences. Let's have a listen in to Jason and Brett Butler, along with Rachel Wilson. I'm glad that we can get you in to talk about the movie um, because I really liked it. And in the review, I said that it's a working class Tarantino. It's a crime drama that proudly wears its low budget status on its sleeve. And I loved that. I loved that uh, it's a movie that really seemed to me to understand what it is how to present it and and make the most of every dollar like every you can see every dollar that you guys spent on the screen somewhere so um uh jason why don't i start with you uh the idea where did it come from it's a sort of a a local hometown hockey star who tries to go home again and it doesn't really work out as well as he had hoped <laughs> absolutely um the idea really just came from We've got a lot of money for the first time. Let's, <laughs> which was very little money. <laughs> well, yeah, you, your previous films, you had made some shorts and things like that, which you had made. I'm guessing for like a thousand, couple thousand bucks here, a couple Whoa, thousand bucks there. Richard, yeah. <laughs> getting crazy. We started off. We made a uh, feature for like fifty bucks. Did a two hander over a weekend. <laughs> then we jumped to the five hundred dollar level, and then uh, the, the previous one to this morning is broken was for a thousand dollars. So, wow. so yeah, this was. Uh, so you had. 250 yeah. times that to make yeah, this, right? Well, we were like Demi Moore and 
We're swimming in bills. <laughs> We're like, we don't even know where to buy this much cocaine. <laughs> so, so, I mean, we just took it as like, this is an opportunity to uh, tell something uh, really personal yeah. and uh, put as much of our uh, love and passion for film into this as well. And uh, so that's where it really began. So, you know, we've, we grew up playing sports. And then that sort of foregone conclusion of us making the NHL dissipated and right. then we're like oh, oh now what do we do yeah now what do we do with the rest of our lives so really that's where it started from and what what happens when you have all this uh, passion and uh, competitive drive in you and you've been so trained and geared where does it go when you're no longer doing it and you know we bantered around ideas he becomes a you know a professional baker or he becomes a <laughs> professional you know and then we're like we we got to dramatize this let's make him a hitman and uh you know we just threw in stuff pizza delivery everything like that that's that's what we do we've done in the past yeah because you delivered pizzas right uh yes we probably got uh almost a decade of experience between us of Delivering the hot pizza pie. <laughs> <laughs> and we were very competitive at it. Really? Oh, yeah. How, it's, you guys what, what, how do you, how are you competitive? Oh, between the two of you, not between uh, no, you and other drivers. Other drivers. Other drivers. Other drivers. Oh, oh, we're too we don't even, we don't even participate in the same stores when we were doing it because I would just get Harry Canary. Oh we so wouldn't be second. here today to talk about this story. <laughs> yeah. just like start you had to go driving company. our cars into each other. <laughs> Where do you think you're doing, man? So. Yeah, so we did separate stores against other drivers, and I, I guess the, one of the original versions of the script it was uh, it was pretty fat with like a lot of delivery sort of stories behind right. the stories and competition, which you know we'd like to do. If, if there was a sequel, it would involve other drivers for sure. Right, and uh, there is, but there still is a lot of references to life as a pizza delivery person. People that don't tip really annoy you guys. Oh, that's the that's worst. So worst. <laughs> I, did you have someone like that guy in the movie? Like worse? Oh, oh yeah. There's <laughs> terrible people guy. out there. And what we're thinking, if one person leaves this movie and starts tipping, <laughs> we've done our job. Done our job. <laughs> okay, so you say there's terrible people out there. I'm fascinated by pizza <laughs> delivery all of a sudden. So what what kind of do people really try and scam free pizzas from you? Oh, w without a doubt, one hundred percent. And and how do, how awful. are ways to do that? Well, you probably don't want to tell. There's no successful ways anymore since yeah. we've seen every possible variation. <laughs> uh, and we don't want to promote that seedy underbelly no. of pizza eating out there. And are people annoying with the coupons and stuff? Are they like, oh, we have three coupons for? Oh yeah, and it's like they print them off the internet. It's scam, scam, scam. A lot of pizza fraud out there. A lot I bet. of. <laughs> oh my gosh. It, it's it's pretty it's pretty unruly. I mean, I remember. <laughs> I love the story. <laughs> oh, you, you got us going. Um, I don't even know all these stories. Oh, it's just uh, people are just kind of shameless. It's such a weird, you know, place to stand and yeah. try and try and make a couple extra bucks by just ripping yeah. off your yeah. pizza delivery guy. And, and does it get worse as it gets later in the day? So at seven o'clock, seven p.m. when you're delivering, it's probably fairly okay. By two o'clock in the morning. I oh, bet yeah. you it's a different scene. Yeah, right? people are drunk yeah. or yeah. like you, in the movie. Like you're people rolling, are you're rolling 50 50 whether or not you're getting any tip yeah. at you know, 2 a.m. Or, or getting yeah. paid at all, right? Yeah. And definitely yeah. you're Coming not being treated nicely. <laughs> people are very friendly at 2 in the morning, I can imagine. <laughs> or they can be very friendly. Or yeah. extra friendly. <laughs> yeah. you, you don't I, want. <laughs> I knew uh, someone who was uh, uh, worked in a hotel and was a uh, room service, and they delivering food to hotel rooms saw some crazy things. I bet naked people, oh, you know yeah. that kind of thing. What's oh. the sort of craziest delivery story? And then we'll move on. <laughs> but what's the craziest delivery story that you can think of? Brett, go ahead. I don't know. There's that. Uh, there's so many. <laughs> I mean, I can. Consider one of the last ones uh, I remember delivering, and uh, uh, the guy opened the door and he just had porn playing on a big screen <laughs> right behind him, and we're we're just doing the exchange like this is just casual, <laughs> and he has this hardcore big screen. Like, oh my god! What are we doing here? That's, That's awesome. pretty Just great. no no shame. You're like no here's shame. your pizza. <laughs> 
Here's your there. Enjoy your pizza and porn. <laughs> it's P and P night. Oh, pizza and porn. It's uh, you know I got in the habit of of calling before getting there just right because what you know it's it's oh, only yeah. people order their pizza and then they all have I guess a ritual and some of those are a bit seedier than others. You know, <laughs> some people like to shower. Some people get you know I guess aroused. There was a guy who I knew for a fact would like call and then just have try and have like furtive relations with. A woman. And I, I wasn't sure at first, but by the third time, and he's answering his gitch, and he's oh like kind of sweaty, and you hear someone That's in the background hilarious. like, this is your thing. He's <laughs> like, I'm going to order a pizza. Yeah, <laughs> I'm going to get this job done. He, he's really quick. He might be here in like 15 <laughs> minutes, so buckle up, baby. And you got to know that that was his deal? Yeah, and oh, I'm like, no, I'm part of this, and <laughs> I don't know what to do. Should I try and get there quicker? <laughs> or just, you know, let him dally into round a little bit? I don't know. So. Oh, that's funny. I'm speaking with Jason and Brett Butler, directors of First Round Down. We haven't talked to Rachel Wilson yet, though. You've been acting since you were 12. I have. Have you ever had uh, jobs? We're talking about food service. we got a few. Let's, let's roll this out with food service stories. Oh, my have gosh. you ever worked in a restaurant? Have you ever done no. Anything like that? That's a very interesting question, Richard. I have worked in a restaurant. Um, you know, the, the standby job for actors when they're not working is waiting tables. I did it for years. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. I mean, I, I I wished I could do it well. I, I continually tried to do it. I, I was fired from many restaurants. Were you? Yeah. And what was the problem? Well, you know, I'm not a very good multitasker, <laughs> and I'm particularly terrible with food multitasking. <laughs> so, you know, someone would be like, I'd like this and this on the side, and then I'd like this as well, and could you make sure it's not done? And, I, you know, I'd have, like, a small anxiety attack in my brain every time somebody ordered something. And probably the worst experience I had waitressing was um, I often didn't tell whole truths on my resume about my waitressing experience. And I had an experience at a restaurant that will rename, um, remain unnamed in Toronto where I said I had done it and they just sort of put me out on the floor like sink or swim. And uh, I actually left the restaurant. Like, I, like my brother was going to write a movie called Runaway Waitress because I literally like, had like the thing around my waist and like I had, you know, I had the apron on and everything. And I was like, I'm just going to go get the order. And I sort of like backed out of the door and kept my eye contact with people. And then I booked it down the street. Like I was running for my life. Like I was like, I have to get out of here because I was either going to. let it go. Yeah. I was that gonna person cry is still waiting of... for that order today. <laughs> I was going to cry in front of people, and I'm like, you know, nobody wants that in their restaurant. Nope. They don't want a crying waitress. I think a runaway waitress is better than a crying waitress, so yeah. But I was very good at selling clothes. My my go-to mm. job was, like, retail, and I, I'm, I'm good with one-on-one multitasking, right. not multi multitasking. I've only, I worked in restaurants and bars for years. <clears throat> I haven't done it for about 20-some-odd years now, yeah. I think. But It's but hard. It, it's hard, and, and you know, there are these moments that, that some crazy things happens the only two uh kind of runaway waitress stories that i have yeah. uh, uh once i was standing in the kitchen of a restaurant and a busser just came running past us and we're like i wonder you know what's going and right out the back door right. and just kept going that was me and we just never saw her again she that didn't was, come back and get her stuff no we no one knows what happened it's traumatic yeah bad things can happen yeah. and you just and, leave. and so that was bad yeah. and then uh, i was working i was bartending on a sunday once and we had, were in a restaurant that had a giant patio, and there were just two of us on. There was a waiter uh, who was a young woman who had just started working there, and me. Normally Sundays weren't so busy, whatever. And then something happened, and the patio filled up, and I'm making drinks, and I'm pouring them out. And I'm realizing that these drinks are stacking up, and like no one is coming to pick them up. And oh, I'm God. looking out at the patio. My nightmare. And so I went out to see what was going on, and she was laying on the floor in a fetal position, literally in a fetal <laughs> position, like murmuring Man. to herself, oh, I can't do this. I, can... I can't do this. This. Oh I can't, gosh. had just a, a complete breakdown because you look at the sea of people with anticipation on their faces and they're hungry and they're thirsty. It's like terrifying. I have yeah. dreams mm-hmm. about waitress. And like they it's, just keep coming and coming yeah. and they coming. do. It's a nightmare, honestly. If you're not good at that thing, it's awful. And people who are hungry are not in a good mood. That was Jason and Brett Butler and Rachel Wilson talking about pizza delivery, about porn, about working in restaurants and not being very good at it. We should have been talking about their movie, First Round Down. It's on VOD. Check it out. It's a really cool little movie. It's got all the kind of spirit of a great hockey fight. Good Canadian stuff. 
Tony Palmer is a director, as I said earlier, over 100 movies. He's worked with the Beatles. He tells great stories about John Lennon. You'll hear those in a little while. Jimi Hendrix, Rory Gallagher, uh, everybody. This guy has found a way to mix entertainment, music, and politics in a way that really hadn't been done before. He started his career at the BBC, but you know what? You'll find out all about this during the interview. We went long with Tony Palmer because he's a fascinating guy who started off studying moral sciences at Cambridge University and ended up working with Ken Russell and the Beatles. How did that happen? Let's find out. How do you go from studying moral sciences at Cambridge University to working with Ken Russell and making music documentaries? Well, moral sciences is a subject peculiar to Cambridge and it's somewhat misleading because it has nothing whatsoever to do with morality <laughs> and only marginal <laughs> influence on science. And it was a, a, a school uh, which was started at the beginning of the uh, 20th century by a famous philosopher called G.E. Moore and he meant the opposite of natural sciences, where you didn't push, you know, pull the, the blue liquid into the red liquid and it went bang. So it was non-empirical sciences, sciences you couldn't demonstrate, mm -hmm. uh, which meant odd things like logic and calculus uh, and experimental psychology, because it was the time of Freud, of course, which, right. again, you couldn't demonstrate, but it was a theory. And I'd gone to Cambridge University on a mathematics scholarship and I had a wonderful tutor who was an engineer who said, you're wasting your time, wasting your time. Go and do this. <laughs> and I said, what the hell is this? And he explained it. I mean, the earliest great, to put it into some kind of context, the earliest great teacher was Bertrand Russell. Right. And the earliest great pupil, although that's slightly insulting considering how important he was, was Wittgenstein. So that's the sort of Mickey Mouse world that I found myself in. But that isn't how I got into films. I mean... I'd, I'd, as every student, you in the long vacation, in the summer vacation, you did a job. Now, one year, I packed butter in the dungeons of Sainsbury's. I think I'm allowed to mention Sainsbury's. Sure. And I, I can't, I was wonderful at it. I mean, I could chop, chop, chop and get exactly one pound of butter. I mean, I was so good at it. But the second year, I thought, I really don't want to do that. Yeah. And I had a friend who was a few years older than me, uh, who was at Oxford, oddly enough the other university we have in England. Yes. And, um, I've heard of it. <laughs> not many people have. Anyway, uh, he left and he joined the BBC. Right. And he said, I'm going to make um, a big film in, the, in Salzburg about the Salzburg Festival. And I know you speak German. I speak a little. And I know you know Salzburg. Would you like to come and be the tea boy? So I said, fine. At that point, I had no interest in films, no interest in music almost, and certainly no ambition to do what I'd finished up doing. So you hadn't spent your summer vacations and whatever time in the theatres no, no, watching movies? Not. No, no I, I thought I was going to finish up being a minor and completely useless academic. <laughs> I mean, I thought that was the future. Anyway, off I go to Salzburg and I'm the tea boy and on about the third day, and, of course, equipment in, in those days, in the middle 60s, was incredibly heavy mm -hmm. and, and bulky. And he pointed, and Salzburg, as you know, has got this big castle in the middle and it's surrounded by the town underneath. And he pointed to the castle, uh, this friend of mine, and he said, we're going to film up there tomorrow. Can you get the equipment up there by 8 o'clock in the morning? Uh, all right. <laughs> so, so I struggled up with all this damn equipment and I'm slumped in the corner of this room where we're going to film and the, the film crew then arrived and some students arrived and then a door opened and I mean it's certainly no further than that window over there yeah. so I mean, maybe three or four yards and in came this van and I thought I know that is goodness me and it was the great painter Oscar Kokoschka yeah. So, uh, 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 so I'm completely <laughs> tongue-tied. You know, I've been conned into doing this. And then I realised that it was an art class. And over there, equidistant, no further, and I, I'm sorry if the ladies yeah. among your audience, I'm sure you have many, are deeply offended by this, <laughs> but was without doubt the most beautiful, completely <laughs> naked girl I'd ever seen who these students were sketching. So I thought, Oscar Kokoschka, incredibly beautiful <laughs> naked... This, and I'm being paid for this. I had this, discovered the arts. Yes, this is money for jam. It was my Damascus moment. I thought, to hell with being an academic. This is much more fun. So a couple of years later, I joined the BBC. And a couple of years been later... downhill ever since. Well, but you're still working for the BBC. I mean, No, 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 I won't but, work for the BBC. 
No. I, I refuse to work for the BBC in its present form. In its present I, and form. And I think in its present form, I'm sure you don't want to get involved in the detail of this, but, I mean, it's a disgrace. They've just uh, they've just abolished their music and arts department. Right. They, they, they're dismantling to save money, right? Uh, uh, I, it isn't saving money. No. I mean, that's the irony of it. I mean, that's the excuse. They, they give two excuses. One, we can't afford it. B, the landscape has changed. Yes, yes. That's irrelevant. Because in the end, what you're doing is insulting the audience because you're saying to the audience... You're too stupid to understand this. You know, we'll just have yet more bake-offs and yet more strictly come twirling about on the floor and making fools of ourselves. You know, it's, 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 it's feeble. And if you think that the BBC, which has such an extraordinary tradition of wildlife programmes, mm-hmm. not, not just David Attenborough, but a whole range of wildlife programmes, drama... I mean, when I was at the BBC, I was at the BBC from 66 to 71, and it's always described as the golden age. Right. Well, I don't think it was particularly. I mean, you know, there was... A lot, there were a lot of very good uh, uh, programs and films made, but there are many more being made now, mm-hmm. but not in my niche, right. which maybe is a minority interest. But I remember always the, the defence of somebody complained even then, oh, well, you know, this this uh, uh, big arts film that you did, that it, or the concert that you did, it only got three million people. That's a minority audience. Yeah, that would fill every concert hall in London <laughs> for right. five years. Don't tell me that's minority, because it isn't. That would be in Canada. That would be huge numbers. If you had three million people yeah, watching, sure. that would be a huge number. And, you know, I think back to uh, the late 60s of the BBC and shows like Omnibus yeah. and things like that, where you gave Ken Russell the opportunity to really kind of redefine what music documentaries are yeah. going to be. He used recreations. Yeah. He had uh, different actors playing the same historical figure at various times in their lives. I mean, people just hadn't done that before. These pushed the, the the limits as to the form and sort of reinvented the form and did it on public television. Well, as you know, I made one film with him uh, mm-hmm. about Isadora Is- Duncan, yeah. uh, Isadora, which, I mean, was, was exactly as you described it. But you also mentioned Omnibus. Isadora was shown in the Omnibus slot. Yeah. Now... Um, uh, we haven't got onto it yet, but I'm sure you will. Uh, I famously filmed the farewell concert of the Cream. That's that right. went out on Omnibus. Yeah. The previous week, there was a profile of Henry Moore, the sculptor. <laughs> you know, nobody thought twice about it. Yeah. That was just where arts programming was. Well, and I, again, the audience didn't discriminate. I think it was a different time, though, in the sense that uh, when I think of what radio was in those days, if you listen to the radio, uh, what they called Top 40 radio at the time, yep. you might hear... Uh, a song by ABBA, then the next song might be by the Eagles, the next song after that might be by the Rolling Stones, the next one after that might be by Cream. All completely different sounding, but and somehow it all seemed to fit together. And then as the 80s turned into the 90s, radio uh, became, and this is a, a slice of this, but radio became more formatted. So now you have radio stations that only play dance music and you have radio stations that only play a certain thing. And I think what it has done is narrowed people's interest. If you like dance music, it's not like you can now listen to the radio and you have to sit through ABBA and the Eagles and, the, and then eventually a dance song will come on. You can get a, a, a full diet of dance music pushed your way. And I think it, it, is, it has limited people's imaginations and limited the opportunities to expose new art and uh, music you're, and everything else to people. You're absolutely right. And I mean, I, I had a, a minor job, as you know, as a journalist. And mm-hmm. I had a, a, a column as music critic number two for the <laughs> London Sunday Observer. Right. You know, the drama critic was a man called Ken Tynan. I mean, it was a yeah, very yeah, distinguished yeah. bunch of people that I was joining. And uh, my job was to go and review everything that the main music critic didn't want to do. So, I mean, I was incredibly lucky. I got, for example, I got to see the last ever performance, it happened to be in London, of Judy Garland. No, because he didn't want to go and review Judy Garland. (laughs) Can you imagine resisting that? But as a journalist, I famously wrote a a column uh, which began um, comparing the Beatles with Schubert. Right. Now, the rest of the column said, you know, they both wrote for fun. They both had no notion of posterity. They both wrote for money. Uh, <laughs> and they both wrote, you know, perform it in the cafe that afternoon. Yeah. Uh, people were horrified. I mean, absolutely, at that time, people were absolutely horrified. And it, uh, loads of people cancelled their live subscription to The Observer. Luckily, I had a, there was a wonderful editor who kept saying, more, give me more, I want more of this. But all it did was to say, you know, that, 
that actually there's no distinction between Mozart and and the Beatles, for example, yeah. or Schubert and the Beatles. There's good Schubert, there's terrible Schubert. There's good Beatles, I can tell you, there's terrible Beatles. <laughs> yeah. We're not allowed to say that. You know, this question of... Uh, oh, this is a terrible name-dropping story. Forgive me for that. But um, I, I interviewed and I met and knew reasonably well uh, at the very end of his life, Stravinsky. Right. And Stravinsky defined the whole thing of saying there's only three kinds of music, he said. Good music, bad music and non-music. He didn't make any distinction right. whatsoever between uh, uh, what might be called classical music, what might be called popular music. You know, there's good and bad in both. Without John Lennon's influence, you may not be sitting here today in the capacity that you're sitting here today? Well, he was very important to me. And, and it, that, again, b it began while I was a, hope, hoped for to be academic right. at Cambridge. And I went to a press conference by the group called The Beatles. Um, this was, uh, we finally tracked it down the date to November 1963. And they'd already had, I think, two or even three number one hits. So they weren't unknown, but they weren't intergalactic in the way yes. that they eventually became. And I went representing the university newspaper and a press conference was in the morning just before lunchtime. And after the press conference, we're all milling around in the way that you do. And this guy came up to me and tapped me on the shoulder and said, why didn't you ask any questions? And I said, uh, well, I thought the whole thing was pretty silly. And he, he, he grinned and giggled and said it was pretty silly. I mean, it was one of those silly Beatles press conferences. Yeah, yeah. So he said, what do you do? So I said, well, I, well, we've already covered this. I did a subject called Moral Sciences. He thought that was hysterical. Um, so he said, um, would I show him around the university? And I said, no, why not? Well, we'll be mobbed or you'll be mobbed. Yeah, this and is John Lennon we're John talking Lennon, about. John Lennon, yes. It's not, it's not my idea of fun. So he said, how yeah. about if I come in disguise? So I said, all right. All right. Yeah. So I mixed, picked him up at the hotel. He's wearing this ridiculous um, a fedora hat <laughs> and a silly beard and a <laughs> dirty raincoat. And I managed to show him some of the wonders of, of uh, Cambridge University. He, he didn't understand that it was lots of little colleges. He thought right. it was just one A monolith. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And But the one that really interested him, I got him into the Wren Library, which is built by Sir Christopher Wren in Trinity College. And, of course, he, then the penny dropped that he'd always felt, and right to his dying day he felt, that somehow he'd missed out on education. Right. And so that was why he was fascinated by the whole thing. Anyway, well, he, at the end of the day, he just scribbled a telephone number and and said, you know, call me when you come to London. I'm not coming to London. You know. <laughs> well, you might. So um, about oh, three years later, I eventually, after my Damascus moment with the <laughs> naked lady, I, I finally arrived in London. And I still had this bit of paper, but by now the Beatles were intergalactic. Yeah. So I thought, well, nothing ventured, nothing else. So I did dial this number. And to my amazement, somebody answered the phone. And I could tell from this weary girl's voice on the end of the phone, I was the 400th person who'd rung up that morning, said, John Lennon said to call. <laughs> so I said, well, he did, and never mind, put the phone down. I thought, I won't hear anything, left my name and number. And about half an hour later, a wonderful man called Derek Taylor, who was their longtime yeah. Beatles publicist, rang up and said, I've got a message from John. So I thought... Heavens, I mean, he's gonna, who the hell is this? And why did you know, stop pestering him and all that sort of stuff? And I eventually nervously said, what is the message? John wants to know why it's taking you three years to call him. <laughs> <laughs> so over brown rice, yeah. <laughs> lunch. Um, I mean, that's what lunch was with John. First course, brown rice. Second course, brown rice. Dessert, <laughs> more brown rice. Um, not quite as bad as that. Uh, he then, I was working at the BBC. He then said to me that... Um, uh, there were all kinds of great musicians um, uh, who either could not get onto the BBC mm -hmm. popular music programmes, things like Top of the Pops, which you will know which, of. If you were on Top of the Pops, it could change your life. It I think could. of David Bowie. This was a few years yeah. later after this. But I think of David Bowie playing Starman on oh, Top yeah. of the Pops. And the next day, he was a superstar. Yeah. You know, and that's the power that that show had. It had. But there were a lot of extraordinary musicians who, who either would not uh, didn't get asked or right. would not appear. Uh, famously, Jimi Hendrix told me that he didn't want to appear beyond the gyrating nubiles. I mean, right. nobody's <laughs> against gyrating nubiles, but you know the kind of show I mean. You've yeah. got these girls sort of wiggling around in Go -go front of Go-go dancers and in some, the foreground. Somewhere over there in the great distance, <laughs> there's Jimi Hendrix giving his all. It's a bit insulting. Right. So uh, John made this list out, and I said, well, I know who these people are, but I, mean, I don't have any context. He said, I'll make the context, you make the film. So, uh, and there was Jimi Hendrix, it was Cream, um, uh, Donovan, uh, 
Frank Zappa. Yeah. <laughs> I can understand why people would be reluctant about that. Uh, and so on and so on. Yeah. So we famously made a film called All My Loving. And uh, John, uh, I showed it to John just before it was broadcast and uh, in 1968. And we made a bet, uh, which he still owes me the five pounds. <laughs> I hope you're listening, John, wherever you are, uh, that he predicted or I predicted that the, the tabloid press, the popular press, they, they would absolutely love it because finally all these great musicians were on television in a quite difficult film, which was being shown in the festival, as you know, and um, that the serious papers would trash it as being pretentious rubbish. Right. And he said, no, 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 other way around. He was right. Yeah. I mean, the, the popular papers hated it. I mean, they couldn't understand why, I, why this was suddenly being taken seriously. Yeah, was it placing... Pop music, or not pop, I guess you would have called that pop music back then, or, or popular music, placing it in a context that was usually reserved for discussions of Mozart and Beethoven. Well, not Mozart and Beethoven particularly, but, but what I was trying to do, and what I've always tried to do, and in the later series, All You Need Is Love, which you've referred to, yeah. um, we did exactly the same. That was also, in, in a strange kind of way, John's idea. Um, that uh, what I was trying to do was to place this music into some kind of social, political with a small p right. context. This is about us. This is about our time. This is how we feel. Mm -hmm. um, and we know we're not going to have any silly lectures from politicians. Yeah. This is this is an expression of us. Uh, all you need is love was was in a way a, a long term historical survey of it. I mean, the, as you know, there are seventeen hours of it. Seven, I know, yeah, seventeen it's, films. My DVD box set of it at home takes up a shelf. Right. Takes up most of a shelf. And yeah. I mean, and what was what was fascinating? And that was I said that was also John's idea because. Yeah. You're much too young, Richard, yeah. to remember. But in the early 70s, it was very fashionable to do these 13-part series, right. putting uh, the history of civilization with Lord Clark, history, first David Attenborough series, really, um, history of America with Alastair Cook, the big 13-part series. That represented a quarter of the, uh, of the year's budget, schedule right. and budget. Right. And John said, you know, Arguably, one of the most important cultural influences of the 20th century is the history and development of popular music, about which we're talking about 1970. Well, this conversation took place in 72, but right. when we made the films in 75, about which people are completely ignorant. They don't know where ragtime came from or what ragtime is, right. really where the blues came from or what it is and, and so on. So we made a list of blues, ragtime, swing, uh, and so on and so on. And then after the brown rice, John shot <laughs> off. And when he got to the door, I'll never forget this, he just looked back and he said, I've got the perfect title for you. I said, what's that? Call it All You Need Is Love. Now, hang on, I said, <laughs> I think there's a song by that name. I can't remember who wrote it. And he, he laughed. What was really wonderful, you mentioned the box set, is that when the box set finally came out a few years ago now, um, the American distributor insisted that we did a title search, you know, to prove that we right. could use the title. And I said, no, wait a second. I mean, it's common parlance. You yeah. know, everybody talks about all you need is love. No, no, must have a title search. Interesting things emerged. Firstly, that the Beatles themselves had never trademarked or copyrighted the title. It right. was in the public domain. Two people had, however. <laughs> One was a brothel in Amsterdam, and the other was a maker of risque lingerie in Hong Kong, I remember. Really? <laughs> and uh, I had to say to the lawyers representing the, the, um, the product in, in the States, I said, do you, do you seriously think that the brothel in Amsterdam yeah. is going to rise out of the swamp <laughs> and take us to the cleaners? <laughs> but I mean, it was, it was, but the whole purpose of it was to show how, how the music had always reflected the social background from yeah. which it had come. And I, uh, I, I, it's not for me to say whether the films, the seventeen films altogether, as you know, it's not for me to say whether they're good, bad, or indifferent. But the important thing was, I think, that we got to places that have since gone. Yeah. We filmed um, the studio in which uh, Elvis Presley had first recorded right. um, for Sam Phillips. Now it's a car park. Yeah. There is a Sam Phillips studio, but it's not the same one. We filmed uh, Beale Street in Memphis, where the blues had really arisen mm -hmm. um, and gone. 
Absolutely gone. And we also got to an extraordinary number of people. You can't, you can't believe this, Richard. Extraordinary number of people who've been, compl- at that time, 1975, completely forgotten. Mm-hmm. We, I tried everywhere to find Muddy Waters. Everybody knows who Muddy Waters yeah. is and what the importance of Muddy Waters. We couldn't find him anywhere. had no representation. We were in Chicago doing something completely, I mean, another part of the series. And I just happened to notice a small ad for a Muddy Waters gig. So I sent uh, one of my assistants off to try and find this place and this man. And she got him on the phone. <laughs> so I'm now talking, I'm standing to attention, I'm talking to Muddy Wars. I became completely incoherent. <laughs> and I, mean, I explained what we were Oh, come on over, he said. So we went down. And while it would not be true, really, to say there were more people in the film crew than there right. were in the audience, that was almost the case. Yeah. Um, and he just said, I mean, he said very politely and sweetly in the interview, you know, I never thought anybody had ever heard of me. Never right. heard of Muddy Waters? Yeah. Come on. And Jerry Lee Lewis, the same. We filmed Jerry Lee Lewis. The only place we could find Jerry Lee Lewis, another legendary character, yeah. was in the entrance hall to a Holiday Inn. He's playing on a little platform over on the left, you know, doing his thing. I, I saw him play live that way. I went, there was a, a period... 25 years ago where I decided I had to see the founding fathers. I had to see little Richard Chucker. I had to see them all. And Jerry Lewis, Jerry Lee Lewis was playing at a a hotel out by the airport here. And I went and there were a few people there to see him, but it was uh, not glamorous. I'll tell you that. It was in the corner. I don't even think it was a real stage. It was something they had Jerry built. I mean, I I realize in retrospect that, I mean, that that was the, the, uh, I I hate to put it like this, but the good thing that we did. I mean, Mm -hmm. we actually found these people and I I would hesitate to say put them back on the map, but I mean, we certainly helped to put them back on the map. I mean, the most amazing things, for example, I filmed, we mentioned Ragtime. We filmed the 93-year-old UB Blake. Wow. And UB Blake described playing with Scott Joplin. Right. You know, so I've got a connection back to Scott Joplin directly through UB Blake. UB, or Scott Joplin, of course, probably best known these days as the the man who wrote The Entertainer, which was the theme music for The Sting and that sort of, but a legendary ragtime piano player. And UB Blake, I always love the quote, if I... If I'd known I was going to live this long, I would have taken better care of myself. That's right. That was UB Blake. That's UB Blake. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I I felt, you know, looking back, it's, I've been endlessly asked to bring it. Why don't you, we filmed it in 75. It was released in 76. It was shown on TV Ontario here, I think. Yeah. Um, Endlessly asked, you know, bring it up. Why don't you bring it up? I don't want to bring it up to date. It was, it is what it is. And there it's now. Well, it's a living document of, of that time. You know, I, 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 you know, you could, I suppose, do seventeen more. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, I love. Well, I was in London recently, and I decided to do a David Bowie walking tour. I had a day off, and I thought I went. To, I went and I looked up all these addresses and things. I'm a huge David Bowie fan, and uh, it was amazing to me. Even in London, which tends to preserve things a little bit more, uh, or, or in a in a better way than we do here in North America, a lot of stuff was gone. A lot yeah. of things weren't there, but yeah. they're. They're preserved here. Yeah, yeah. But again, the, I mean, the, we, we mentioned earlier, you know, that uh, the landscape has changed. Yes, it has. Uh, I mean, one of the reasons I'm here, as you know, is is uh, because of the film I made about Leonard Cohen, Bird yep. Noir. And everybody says, God, how, how did you get such wonderful access to him? It's very simple. Because in the, when we made that film in 1972, he didn't, a record contract wasn't going to be re- mm-hmm. renewed. Uh, he didn't want to tour anymore. So the only people we had to deal with was Leonard and the band. Yeah. You know, there were no PR people. There were no record executives. And I, I wanted, the only time I've ever been tempted to go back and do something uh, with uh, a pop singer or a yeah. rock and roll singer was a, a famous lady singer. Uh, I'm uh, w- wondering whether I should mention her name because it's, up to hell with it. Uh, Adele. Yeah. And I just, my wife had heard this voice on the radio and said, you've got to listen. This is an amazing, an amazing voice. And then I saw an interview with her or heard an interview with her and she's effing and blinding and, you know, and I thought, perfect, perfect woman, a wonderful, (laughs) angelic voice and and that kind of huge personality. 
So I went off and I met her and I talked to her and, and um, I actually took her a copy of the, the Leonard Cohen film. And um, she said, oh, this would be great fun. We could do this. And then I'm going here and doing that. And, uh, and I said, well, I can't do it at the moment because I'm finishing something else. I'll see you in a few months' time. Unfortunately, in the few months' time, out came 21. And record. she became stratospheric. And suddenly, there's, I go back to have my next meeting with her and the 16 PR people. I'm not yeah. making that up. So yeah. I counted 16 PR people surrounding me. And I asked her a question and I could hear the echo mm -hmm. going right round the other saying, no, no, I think it would be much better if you asked her. Yeah. No, I don't want to ask her that. I've just asked her something. She clearly got very irritated, but yeah. it didn't happen. I'm speaking with Tony Palmer, the legendary director of All You Need Is Love and 99 other films uh, about music. We're talking about, we've just got a couple of minutes left in this segment, but we were, it was a fascinating story about Adele and the amount of protocol that happens now with, with acts. If you think back to John Lennon, who had had three hits when you first met him, three or four hits the Beatles had. They weren't stratospheric yet, but he gave you his phone number and said, call me sometime, yeah. and then responded when you called. Those things don't happen anymore. No, it was, I mean, Lon London in the in the mid-60s was a, a tiny little microcosm. I mean, it was, it was um, I mean, it's almost, people, uh, now I, I think back on it, it, it was a golden moment. I mean, one is always tempted to think, you know, the music of one's youth, right. that was when it was wonderful. The summers were longer <laughs> and hotter. There was snow in the wintertime. None of those are true. <laughs> but what was true about London if I can call it society at yeah. that time. It, it was never swinging London. I mean, when that when that article came out in Time magazine, all of us were looking around, where is it? Please tell us where it is. We're desperate to find it. But, you know, just people knew each other you, yeah. and people walked down the street and you could chat to them in the street. There was kind of, it was, it was open house. And there were places like the Marquee Club, yep. the Bag of Nails, places where, you know, Paul McCartney would go watch Jimi sure. Hendrix and, and George Harrison would drop by for a drink. Marquee Club's about to close. Bad news. Is it? Hot news from the front. From 50... Well, we have we have various forms of wicked government in England. Yeah. Uh, they're not all called Mrs. May. Yeah. <laughs> but... Um, the, the the business rates have escalated to such right. an extent that I mean something like the Marquee Club, which you know never made any money. It was no. a sort of dingy dungeon. Should be a historical of landmark. Course, of course, yeah. But I mean, I'm sure what they'll do with it is what they did with the cavern. You know, instead of just leaving the cavern as it was, which yeah. everybody would have in Liverpool with the yeah. Beatles would have wanted to have seen. You know, there's a kind of a glossy, um, totally false atmosphere now called or a, a building called the cavern. Yeah, which has nothing to do no, really with uh, what the Beatles were. Except the name. Bird on the <laughs> Wire is your Leonard Cohen documentary made in 1972. And it was around the time, as you said earlier, Leonard Cohen doesn't have a record, or about to not have a record yeah. contract. That was the fear anyway. Yeah. And, and the records weren't selling. Yeah. I mean, they had a cult following in, in Europe, but I mean, virtually nothing in, in North America. And you made a film that I don't think you could make today. No. Uh, about the, the access has changed so much. Uh, there are more permissions required for everything. You can't just follow someone around anymore. I think of Lonely Boy, the great documentary about Paul Anka. Mm -hmm. Again, a, a portrait of what it's like from the inside to be a teen idol. Mm -hmm. You could not make that movie today. Um, well, Leonard was very insistent when I, when I, I'd met him at the Isle of Wight actually, and when he played at the Isle of Wight Festival. Uh, but when we first met in, I think October, November '71, uh, to discuss this possibility of this film, because the manager, of course, knew that Leonard wasn't going to said he wouldn't tour anymore. Right. Luckily, that's not what turned out to be the case, and that there was a fear that the record contract wasn't going to be renewed. So the, the manager needed some sort of film document, otherwise, you know, what? Right. Nothing. Right. So the first thing Leonard said. To me was, you know, I don't want to make this film. <laughs> I said, Great, it's a good start. But he then made some very interesting, um, not conditions exactly, but mapping out the territory. The first was, um, did, uh, and luckily I'd taken with me a copy of the book of poems, Energy of Slaves, mm -hmm. because that's how I first came to him right. as a poet. Uh, only later on I realised he also sang songs. I mean, it sounds pathetic, yeah. but I mean that was the case. But he said, you know, I'd, I don't want to. I don't want to film about a tour. And then I went, and then I did, and then right. I went. I also don't want uh, to be portrayed as as a purveyor of sentimental, happy little love songs about Marianne or Suzanne yeah. or whatever girl that he was dating yeah, yeah. at the time. 
And I assured him that that's not what I did. You know, I tried to make films about people, people of courage. I mean, that's what all my films have in common. These are people of, of courage. They're, they're, they're portraits of trying to get inside the human being mm -hmm. that's in front of you. Um, and that, uh, you know, I would do my best that that would be the focus of the film him yeah. uh, and that I promised that uh, there would be political content with a small p right. so that he understood or that the general audience understood that there was something really substantial about this music mm -hmm. which is why it has lasted and why it will always last yeah. you know if they were just silly little love songs then they wouldn't last but they are as we know they are lasting and then I made one other uh, condition I said whatever happens Leonard on, when we're on tour together we were on tour for a month uh, you are never ever to close the door so whatever <laughs> happens you know will be there yeah and of course that there were some hilarious moments i mean there was one hotel we stayed in where um he headed off to the sauna bath i mean the, and um so we of course we went straight into the sauna bath everybody took the clothes off and <laughs> headed into the sauna bath of course completely forgetting the steam in a sauna bath <laughs> so there were, lots of wonder, the there were lots of wonderful things that happened which i wouldn't want to repeat in front of polite society but we lost all of that but uh, we worked out that i think that that our little family was about 23 people, including Lennon and his band, the stage crew, the sound crew, and my film crew of four people. I was the lighting man. I was yeah. the man who waved the light about. Right. And when people say it, I said, how many cameras did you have? One. How many, what, I mean, all the lights around. Oh, there's one light. That's me holding the light, <laughs> pointing it wherever I needed to point it. So uh, this little family, we all always travelled together. We were in the same bus, on the same plane, in the same hotel, usually in the same sauna bath yeah. and the same swimming pool. <laughs> and that gave a kind of intimacy which allowed me to film moments which I think are... Uh, unrepeatable like I mean towards the end he completely breaks down and he's sitting there crying and I mean uh, people have said to me well did he do that for the camera I mean the camera was as close to him as you are to me you yeah. know a meter away and he didn't take a blind bit of notice I mean he was just completely now he trusted me absolutely and he was completely within himself and that's what I was trying to find and, and used to after a month having a camera around it just becomes part of the furniture after part of a the while. furniture and yeah. exactly and when you think I mean goodness me I mean if only we'd had the digital cameras we have now which are no bigger than this microphone yeah. you know this these were enormous great film uh, cameras and and, and which, you, which you had to reload we, oh, and probably me, every like every 10 minutes, minutes every 10 minutes every 10 minutes yeah wow. every 10 minutes and then you needed batteries <laughs> I mean dear oh dear what a palaver yeah that's <laughs> So that, that's what you, a you, you think of that, you know, uh, when I know that uh, when uh, who was it? Dan Rather was talking about being at uh, in, in Dallas when they shot President Kennedy and it was all film. Everything yeah. was like, so to get that on the air for the news that right. night, they had to throw the film on a plane, get it to New York, yeah. get it developed. Edit, I mean. What yeah. a, you know, yeah. it, it, it seems inconceivable to me. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, Leonard, I mean, was um, he, he was when he saw the finished film, he was worried about it because mm -hmm. uh, the word he always used, it was too confront. The original version was too confrontational. Uh, now and then there was the whole saga of the film yeah. being lost. And I, I think he he then had to he made a second version, which he spent vast sum of his own money. And I think he just put it away. He was embarrassed by the thing. Right. Somehow that the, 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 I think he thought he'd lost my trust in right. what happened. I right. don't think that was true at all. But now retrospectively, I mean, oh God, 40 years later, I think what happened was that it's like a lot of, uh, I mean, I worked a lot with Richard Burton, as mm -hmm. you know, and Richard Burton never, ever wanted to see himself on the screen. Right. Because as he said, I don't understand why people think I'm interesting. You know, I've got pop marks <laughs> here and my mouth is skew with, my one eye is slightly upside down and I've got, I, I suppose this is voice, but I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I can't hear it anyway. He just never, ever wanted to see himself on the screen, except one famous occasion. Um, and I think Leonard suddenly saw himself, himself, right. the I mean, it sounds pretentious to say so, but the real Leonard Cohen. And I think that frightened him. I think he just hadn't anticipated that we would get that close to him. And probably unclear of the effect that might have on exactly. his fan base and his potential audience. Yes, I think so. I mean, that, that I'm not quite so sure about, yeah. but I think... 
think suddenly to see yourself writ large on the screen uh, is is a, is a shock if that's not what you do. I realized what I said just sounded like uh, Adele's publicist speaking. <laughs> <laughs> we have to worry about the fans and yeah, what they'll yeah, think. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. But I mean, uh, there was the famous, uh, just going momentarily back to Richard Burton, I mean, there was uh, Cleopatra. Mm-hmm. Okay, Richard was already a star. Yeah. Uh, but Elizabeth Taylor, of course, was mega, mega star come mega star. And the very first day's filming, um, Richard went to, um, and I had this story both from Richard and Elizabeth and from Joe Mankiewicz, who filmed yeah. uh, Cleopatra. Richard went to Joe Mankiewicz and said, I'm really sorry, I was terrible today. I mean, I really was awful. And, you know, I'm, I'm letting the show down. And Joe Mankiewicz said, don't be so damn silly, get back there and do your job. So, end of the second day, um, he went again to Joe Mankiewicz and said, no, I, I, I mean, I, I don't know what to do. You know, I mean, I, I can't hear what she's saying, Elizabeth Taylor. I mean, I'm, she's like a plank. I mean, I don't know what the hell's going on. <laughs> So famously, Joe said, Richard, you've got to come and watch the dailies. Now, as I said, Richard never liked to see himself. He said, we went to this little viewing theatre. I mean, Elizabeth never went, but uh, Richard was there and Joe Mankiewicz and a few other people. And he said, every, the moment the scene came up, everybody's eyes went straight to Elizabeth. And who was that idiotic windmill on the left? What the hell is he doing? And Richard said, you know, I learned that moment what it is to be a great screen actor, yeah. just from that single example. But that apart, he never, never wanted to see himself. And I think similarly, um, Leonard suddenly seeing himself on screen and not, not the performing element. Mm-hmm. I mean, singing the songs, that was fine. He could cope with that. Yeah. But the other things, um, which are far more intimate and far more silent in a strange way, where you're watching this man wrestle with himself and his songs and his music and his his creativity, Mm -hmm. which he felt was going down the tubes because people weren't appreciating other than sentimental little love songs, if you see what I mean. Uh, I saw Cleopatra recently. And I hadn't seen it in years. Uh, the last time I saw it was on a big screen. I watched it on television uh, recently. And I swear you can tell which scenes were shot after lunch, yeah. if you know what I mean. <laughs> I do Because the boozy mean. lunches on yeah, that set yeah. were legendary. Well, and Elizabeth, I mean, could drink anybody under the table. This is what I'm yeah, told. Yeah. yeah. Oh, she was, I mean, she was lo- lovely and extraordinary woman. But, I mean... Uh, um, Every time I see the Queen now, I think, as I've been watching today, because yes. uh, uh, Prince Philip has retired at long last, age 96, not mm-hmm. bad, um, that and when every time I see the Queen, I think I think of, of Elizabeth Taylor because they're both midgets. Yeah. <laughs> it's the thing you never realised about Elizabeth Taylor. She was tiny. Well, I met, I met her once, and it was at the Cannes Film Festival, and I stood in a pen, in a, in a red carpet pen. They literally had yeah. a jammed in there so tight the camera guy was resting his lens on my shoulder that's how tight yeah. we were and i only did it because i wanted to meet elizabeth taylor and uh, it they were screening giant i think and raising money for for charity and we waited for hours and nothing, nothing. We got there very early. And then someone came by and said, you know what? She's not going to be here for ages. You may as well all go and come back in two hours. And 95% of the of the red carpet got up and left. I stayed because I was like, I've, I've got a great position here in the red carpet. I've been here for three hours already. I'm going to stay. 20 minutes later, she shows up. There's nobody there to film her. So I get this long interview with Elizabeth Wonderful. Taylor. Wonderful. And, and she was... Still, at, it, this would have been 10 years ago, probably, uh, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago, maybe now. Uh, and she, even in her diminished state, was beautiful oh, yes. and charming yes. and magnetic. That was Tony Palmer. Now, if you're interested in checking out his work and have 17 hours to spare, check out All You Need Is Love. You can get it all in one place on DVD. If you don't have that much time, maybe check out Bird on a Wire, the Leonard Cohen documentary, The Harvest of Sorrow about Rachmaninoff. There's so many. There's a hundred of them to choose from. I know that you'll find good stuff here. Well, that's it. That's all the time we have today. I want to thank Jason, Brett, Rachel, Tony, all of them for stopping by. The show wouldn't have been the same without them. Most of all, though, I want to thank you for coming by. Every single week, you come, you knock on the door. We're always glad to have you. But right now, it's time to wrap things up. Don't forget to come back next week. We'll have a whole new show up. Every Monday, we put something new up. You never know who's going to stop by for a visit. And who knows? Maybe it will be one of your favorite people. 